Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode three of Both Sides of the Stethoscope. I'm your host, Dr. Colby Salerno, along with my co-host, Dr. Aline Gregosian. We're very excited to have you back with us today. We hope you enjoyed the first two episodes where you just got to know both of us. Uh, but now we're going to start digging into some different healthcare topics from our unique view as patients and doctors. I'm really excited about this episode. I know that we're going to talk about vaccines and COVID and everything starting from the beginning, right? Definitely. And just as a reminder, the content here should not be taken as medical advice. This content is just for informational purposes only. And because each person is so unique, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. And lastly, views and opinions expressed by me and Aline in this podcast are our own and do not represent that of our employers. I think we should get started. Yeah, let's get started. So Aline, um, we're going to start going way back to March 2020, when I feel like, at least as Americans, this is when COVID-19 really, you know, reared its ugly head in our healthcare system. So kind of what were you doing at that time? And did it affect your daily life at all, knowing that you were immune compromised, and this, you know, virus was spreading pretty rapidly? So I remember, one of the last things I actually went to was this cardiology conference was the end of February, CRRT, right? And I was presenting there. Everything was going really well. We had kind of heard about this coronavirus, COVID. And, and, you know, like coronavirus is a very common virus that we see in patients all the time. Coronavirus as in, you know, there's many strains of coronavirus. So even though we had heard about it, I don't think many of us were that scared, you know, in January and February, even when we were immunocompromised. But then like, I remember I went to the conference. I went back home. At that time, I was living in Philadelphia. Things were kind of ramping up. And towards maybe like a couple weeks later, we I actually had to go to another conference. It was this emergency medicine conference that was going to be held in New York City, in the heart of New York City. And I made the decision to not go. And I remember I made the decision to not go based on the fact that I was starting to think that this was going to be a bigger deal than everybody was kind of making it out to seem. And I wasn't sure if this was going to be some crazy illness and disease. You know, I know we had heard all these stories about China, but again, like we hadn't seen it much in, in the States yet. But at the same time, because I was immunocompromised and keep in mind at that time, I was only like maybe a year out of transplant. So I was more so going off of the fact that I was still kind of a fresh transplant. I didn't want to expose myself to any new viruses, any viruses, let alone any new viruses. So I decided to not go to that emergency medicine conference uh, in New York. And, uh, you know, then everything kind of hit. I remember a couple of my attendings had gone. One of them even came back sick. And then a whole bunch of people had gotten sick at that conference. And I think some, I mean, I assume like looking back, obviously some of them had gotten COVID and then we actually named the virus and all these things happened after that. So I remember it was very anxiety provoking, but we were still unsure of what to do about everything. So that was kind of the beginning for me. I think it's uh, so interesting looking back how much we did not know about COVID-19 because I too remember being so naive and thinking, oh, this isn't really that big of a deal. It'll, you know, pass us by probably pretty quickly. It's just a coronavirus. Corona, like you said, there's many strains. Coronavirus is never a big deal when somebody has it. Like if it comes up on the expanded viral panel on someone who came through the ED, but that kind of changed quickly. So I remember um, I 
work in Massachusetts and I was just a second year resident and I was actually on a heart failure rotation. And we had gotten like our first sick uh, COVID-19 patient in the hospital. And my attending at the time knew I had a heart transplant, knew that heart failure for me was just an elective and was like, you should not be here. Um, We don't know really what's going on. And so she sent me home and I ended up not returning back to the hospital for three months, I think. I think I didn't go back until June. Uh, They kept me home that entire time and had me work from home, which was, you know, crazy and maybe extra. We took extra precautions, but I'm thankful for it. It allowed us more time to learn more about COVID-19 and it just showed kind of how amazing the staff that I work with is. Yeah, I think um, right in the beginning, I didn't change like much of what I was doing. But once it started getting worse and worse, especially in New York City. So I was living in Philadelphia, all that stuff was going on in New York City, which was close to both of us. But then I was actually doing finishing up my residency in a in a hospital right outside of Philadelphia where it hadn't started picking up yet. But we did have the occasional COVID patient coming in starting in like March or April. And right about that time, I asked if I could switch my rotations around. So, you know, in for those of you who don't know, residency when you're in when you're in medical training, you have to finish a certain number of rotations and a certain number of specialties. So I was doing emergency medicine at the time and I had to do a pediatrics. I, I was almost done with residency essentially. I only had like maybe a couple months left. And the good thing was like because I didn't have that much time left. And on top of that, I think I had like a pediatric rotation left. So I was able to switch it to this inpatient rotation where I didn't have as much patient contact. Unfortunately, I couldn't do a clinic rotation because emergency medicine has no clinic time. I couldn't work from home, but I did a little bit of like administrative research time. And then I did some pediatric inpatient rotation. And then overall, like our ER did not get totally bombarded with COVID patients at that time. But yeah, I agree with you. Like I had, we had such good faculty and like colleagues that, that knew about, you know, our situation. So they were able to like work around, you know, our issues and (laughs) our health issues. And they knew about, you know, the vulnerability that we, we faced and all these things that we had to do around the, the pandemic. This is kind of where I'm so thankful that I work in healthcare and, you know, have the knowledge that I do because it really allowed me to understand the changing landscape of this pandemic and kind of why recommendations change so frequently. And, you know, as we get more information, things constantly change. And I can see myself if I wasn't in the healthcare field, just being on the outside being like, why are they recommending this now? And why was it this before? And this is where it's like, again, I'm thankful that I have this knowledge base to know why these decisions were made. And I really enjoyed this time. I got to teach med students from home over Zoom a lot. And there was like a major surge in my hospital and the residents were all tasked to come in and work a lot more in our ICU. And thankfully, you know, it was my job to just cover their outpatient inboxes and things and not have to put myself in harm's way. Yeah, that's amazing that you got to switch your role, but still play a big part and help out in different ways. Yeah. And then, as we know, that was kind of surge number one, and it would definitely not be the last. I think you and I both returned to the hospitals as working residents and or fellows and kind of took on COVID 
as practicing physicians. So how did that go for you? And were you back in like, had you returned to New York City, like to start your fellowship? Where where were things for you? Yeah, basically, I mean, this was in no way forced upon me. I remember people kept telling me like, are you sure you want to go to New York City? Because I was going to be starting my critical care fellowship in basically June, July of 2020, which was right around the time that first surge was quieting down. And I made the decision. I said, I'm not going to hold off on fellowship one more time. Like I already went through this heart transplant and had to hold like hold off on it defer at one time. And I'm not going to do that again. I don't think people have to do that again. Like this was totally my choice. Nobody forced me into it. My program said that they would defer if I, they would have me defer if I wanted to again, like everybody was okay with me doing anything that I wanted to, but I made the decision to go back to work. I mean, to go back to the ICUs. Obviously I tried my best to to work around COVID patients as much as possible. So for example, I tried not to like intubate COVID patients or people who were pending their COVID tests. But, you know, that doesn't mean I was never, ever exposed. You know, there were always times where we would, there's always going to be a time where we're going to be exposed to COVID patients when you're working in the hospital. With that being said, when I got out of my heart transplant surgery, I remember one of the things that my team had told me over at Penn was, when you go back to the hospital, you have to be very careful around patients. This was before COVID, right? So one of my things that I decided to was always wear an N95 no matter what. So I was careful around patients even before COVID had started. And so kind of wearing a mask, wearing an N95 as much as possible in the hospital was something that I'd already been doing. Uh, I think the only thing that I had to add on to all the precautions I had been taking before COVID started was making sure my... my um, I, you know, I wear, I had some sort of like splash guard I wear on at all times too, but that's about it. And so I was taking the same precautions, maybe a little bit extra because of COVID. So I went back to work. I mean, I, I, you know, I started my fellowship. I was doing as much as I could, obviously trying not to do procedures on these COVID patients, trying not to directly expose myself to COVID patients. But by that time, when I was in New York City, that surge, that initial like really bad surge was already you know, quieting down. So, you know, it, it's, it, it was still, and again, it was very anxiety prov- provoking, but it was also nice to know that I was a part of something that I had always wanted to kind of help out with. Again, I have my degree in public health. I'd always wanted to do emergency medicine and critical care. COVID was like the thing that all of us, all of us in critical care kind of we're looking forward to helping out with, right? With all these really sick patients doing all these new innovative things and and helping them. So it was almost like we were doing our best in this crazy time in the world. And um, we were all kind of proud of what we were doing. Yeah, that's awesome. And I admire you for getting right back in there and not, you know, deferring another year. I feel like it's just something that maybe happens with transplant just because I relate to it so much is that you're so patient when you're sick, you're willing to go through whatever it takes, wait for your heart transplant, go through the cardiac rehab, all of that. But then at once you're like feeling better, there's like the patience disappears and you're not willing to wait any longer. It's like time to get on with life. Right. I, I was the exact same way. And now I'm like not patient with anything like, you know, going through a three-year fellowship is like a dagger to me, but it's like, I know I need to do it to do cardiology, but it's like, I just want to get to that next part of my life. <laughs> So that being said, you're, you know, 
working in the ICU now, and I had actually also returned. I was at that point was starting third year of residency and had been working. And then I remember you you started in the ICU too. Yeah, I went back to the ICU, and again, they were great. I was mostly taking care of the non-COVID patients. The other residents were taking care of the COVID patients. And the scarier part uh, wasn't when the patients you were taking care of had COVID. It's the outbreaks that would take place within the hospital staff. Um, We had a couple take place, and in the end, it kind of started to get linked to lunchrooms where everyone would take off their mask and be eating and talking. And I remember one of the interns who was part of the team I was working on got COVID and I had been like next to him every day for a week. And I was like freaking out thinking like, you know, what, what if I get it? And luckily I didn't. And I went and got my negative tests and it was all great, but it was definitely that initial fear that like at any time I could get this and I didn't know how transplant patients would respond to getting COVID. And I too just wanted to be in there and be helping and, you know, take all the precautions I could, but still be part of this pandemic as we're learning on the fly and and trying to treat this as best we can. Yeah. I feel like that's how we all, I mean, that's definitely how I felt. And I remember even talking to you about the same exact thing, right? Like we were always texting each other, like, this is exactly how I feel. And you would agree. Was it weird for you when you had to be extra careful around everyone. And like, even when things started to like, when we started to like loosen up, maybe around summer, when people started kind of going out to like dinners and you had to kind of say no to people, was that weird for you? Yeah, definitely. It gets weirder depending on who you're talking to because people have such strong feelings about this pandemic, whether good or bad. And so some, you know, think maybe you're being too cautious, some, you know, think you're not being cautious enough. And that's just kind of the way this thing has gone. But I took a lot of precautions, I really only did things outdoors. That was really how I would see people outside of work. That's how I would see my family, we would all be outside. And that's kind of where I felt the safest. uh, And that was just kind of going off the information that we had. And although I had to say no, I I certainly don't regret it. And I still, to this day, have, especially with summertime and nice weather, if something is going to be inside or outdoors, I take the outdoors route every time. Yeah, I agree. I remember because I just started fellowship. So there were a lot of, I mean, we didn't do many because of COVID, but Here and there, we would do some events, we would do social gatherings with the new fellows. And like, I know this sounds really sad, but like, I would constantly say no. And like, I almost feel like I didn't really have a social life, but I was really looking out for myself. And I feel like a lot of us have to do that. You know, it it took, it doesn't, it didn't take like a crazy toll on me because eventually you get to know the people in the hospital. And that's usually your family anyway, when you're in training. But um, I remember some people would ask, they'd be like, why don't you ever come out? And I'd be like, oh, you know, no, pro- no big deal. I'm just really immunocompromised and we're in the middle of a pandemic. So <laughs> like, <laughs> there's little things that, you know, some people don't understand. So it's OK. <laughs> Definitely. With that being said, I think that's why like we were all looking forward to the vaccine. Yeah, definitely. And like even just I remember like when dexamethasone, right, when that study came out, that dexamethasone showed you know, improvement in treating COVID. It was like such a exciting time. And all of a sudden, you're like, the article gets published. And the next day, your hospital 
treatment plans change. And it's like, when in medicine, are you really going to be a part of something like this? And I would never wish to go through it again. And I really wish we didn't. But in terms of adapting to things on the fly and getting to be a part of it treatment wise was very cool. Yeah, I agree. Remember when they were trying to figure out if it was like a hypercoagulable disease. So we had to come up with different treatment options, management options for uh, patients who were clotting because of COVID or if they were hypocoagulable and this is what we were doing. So it was, it was really crazy. I remember all that. We had to come up with guidelines like right as we were going through it, which is really crazy if you think about it. You know, I'm going to be 10 years post-transplant next year. So, which is really exciting, but it puts me, you know, much further out. I'm not on as heavy doses of immune uh, immunosuppressants, but in 2012, when I got my transplant, I was going out with a mask on. So the whole world didn't have masks on, but, you know, being in the transplant immune compromised community, I was walking around the mall with a mask on. And of course, at that time, people looked at you even more than they do now. But so it's like turning to masks and stuff. It had already been something I had done. And I think that even made it easier and probably, you know, speak for a lot of immune compromised people who are like, oh, masking, this is just kind of part of our life. Totally. I was actually just, again, like almost a year out when COVID happened. So I, I would mask and like, like on public transportation, um, I would obviously mask in the hospital. I would mask in like really crowded places. And I hadn't even been going out that much. Like, I think I only went to like one basketball game. I had never gone to a concert. I still haven't gone to a concert since like my transplant. So I hadn't, I was already kind of doing everything that we're now doing because of COVID. Um, it was just that more people started doing it. So I kind of felt like, I don't know, it was nice to, it was nice that like everybody was kind of doing everything that I had already been doing. I, I mean, not nice, but like, it was like everybody kind of understood what I was going through, I guess. I don't know how else to explain it, but, but yeah, totally. It was nothing new for me, I guess. Yeah, exactly. So there we, you know, we're both there. We're both working in the hospital treating COVID patients. And I think the biggest glimmer of hope was when we started to hear about the COVID-19 vaccine in fall of 2020. And I, for one, was extremely excited because to me, it felt like maybe there was a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, How did you feel when you first started to hear about it? Exactly the same way. I remember I was very excited for the vaccine. I knew that even though, you know, I guess I guess I should say this. So a little bit about vaccines in in solid organ in, in transplant patients or immuno immunosuppressed patients in general. You know, when we are immunosuppressed, we don't really have much of a, an immune system to work with, right? So anybody who's immune suppressed, anytime they get some sort of vaccine or something that's supposed to boost their immune system, like a vaccine, create antibodies, all that is not always going to work. Or even if it does, it's not going to always work as effectively as it does for the immunocompetent population. It just makes sense. Uh, Logically, why would it, right? Because you're immunosuppressed for a reason. You don't want your immune system to work as well because you don't want your immune system to work because you're trying to not reject the organ that you have. You're trying to not flare up your autoimmune disease or whatever the reason might be. So, you know, I was very excited for the vaccine, but at the same time, I knew that there was going to be some sort of, there was going to be either some hesitancy or there was going to be some caveat for us, you know, immunosuppressed transplant people. At the same time, I knew that I was going to get it no matter what. I I, I didn't, I was like, I don't even know what the guidelines are going to be for me, but I'm going to get it. I don't care. So like, you know, so I think that's kind of how 
I looked at it at that time. Yeah. And we know coming from this patient population, why vaccines are such a light at the end of the tunnel, not just because, oh, we were definitely going to get it, but it's, we are the population that relies on herd immunity. So we're waiting for other people to get vaccinated to protect immunocompromised people like us, which is why when you go to school, you're hoping that everyone gets vaccinated because it's protecting the kids in school who are unable to receive vaccines. So that way there's not a widespread outbreak and those kids are at greater risk. So that's why it's like so exciting when you first hear that a vaccine might be on the horizon. And I was so excited about it. I, as soon as the New England Journal of Medicine started, you know, putting out their articles, I was like volunteering for journal club and was like, I will present this article just to make myself have to read it and increase the knowledge. And that's like when it was caught, you know, and it still is in the journals, but it's like the BNT, a bunch of numbers and letters vaccine. And so it was, it was really exciting to see. And it was also increasing my knowledge base to say everyone who's getting the vaccine in these trials is showing that there's not a lot of side effects. And it made me more confident when it came out that we could get it and be okay with it. Yeah. And also keep in mind, I should also say this, even though vaccines aren't like 100% effective in uh, immunocompromised patients, we do always want to get them because, you know, there's more benefits to getting them than risks, even though it doesn't always work or it might not work, there's a chance that it will. So that's why we still, you know, most vaccines or, you know, all vaccines are still recommended, you know, by the CDC for for transplant patients. Some of the live ones obviously aren't because they can actually, you know, increase your your risk of causing the actual virus, which we can get into in some other time. But for the most part, that's why it's important to get your vaccines, even if you are immunocompromised and they're not going to 100% work all the time. Yeah, exactly. And in the most basic terms, vaccines are there to make it so that our body recognizes the virus and is ready to fight it when it sees it, as opposed to just seeing it for the first time and really not knowing what it is, which gives the virus like a leg up. So even being immune compromised, if you can show, you know, part of the virus to your body, and that way, if you ever get COVID-19, your body would be like, oh, I've seen this before. It does make it, you know, your body have a better chance of fighting it off. Exactly. So just a little bit of background. We wanted to talk a little bit about these vaccines, especially because even when I first heard about it, you know, going through medical school, learning what we learn, mRNA vaccines were still new. And so I will give a shout out to an amazing Twitter thread. I think the pandemic, if, if shown me anything, it's the, the medical education and discussions that happen on social media are actually pretty incredible. But there is a physician at the University of Saskatchewan who goes by at Wheat and Oil. And I recommend everyone kind of go and uh, look at his or her thread. They break down the mRNA vaccines and how brilliant they are at a science level. So I'm kind of just going to take a few of the salient points from this. And so basically, as we just talked about, your immune system is there to attack anything foreign in your body, whether it's a protein or virus or a bacteria or anything it doesn't recognize, and then it launches an attack. So if your body is fighting off a virus, it needs to build up for a full attack, and it has to figure out what part of the virus it can attack and how to ramp up production of what it needs to attack these parts. And it can take a few days. And meanwhile, the virus is just replicating and expanding. 
So the whole point of a vaccine is for your immune system to run into this virus and say, I've seen this before. This is not the first time I've seen it. So it doesn't take days to ramp up its full attack. It's ready to go as soon as it sees this virus. So the important thing about the mRNA vaccine is that COVID has DNA in it that codes for all of its parts. And scientists were able to look at this DNA and sequence it and found the DNA that blueprints for the protein, the spike protein. So scientists were able to take this blueprint of the DNA protein and made an mRNA version of it. So it's literally just instructions on how to make that protein. So the vaccine, it contains no actual part of the virus. It only has the instructions on how to make this protein. So you can't get infected with COVID from the vaccine, you only can get these instructions. So when your cells see these instructions, they say, sure, I'll make this. And they cells make a bunch of this protein. And your immune system sees this new protein and it's like, oh, what are you producing? Let's start attacking this. And that's why when you first get the vaccine, you might start having, whether that's arm pain, maybe some fever, chills, muscle soreness, that's because your body is attacking this new protein that you made. So you destroy it. And remember, this protein, it, it cannot infect you. It's just a protein, not the virus. And so your memory cells remember this protein. They remember exactly how to destroy it. It is important to note that your body breaks down the mRNA instructions that you are given in this vaccine, because if you can kind of just think about it, the, it, you don't need a bunch of instructions hanging around forever. So your body breaks those down and gets rid of them. So now you've broken down the mRNA instructions, you've destroyed the protein, everything from the vaccine is gone, except for the memory cells who remember what the protein looks like and how to recognize it. So then later in life, hopefully not if you're able to avoid it. But if you do, you know, the COVID virus enters your body, and your body has never seen this virus in before, but it has seen the protein that's on the outside of the virus. And your memory cells say, I can recognize this, let's get this out of here. So your body's own natural immune system quickly and efficiently launches an all out attack on this protein and it destroys the virus before it can take hold, replicate and make you sick. So now you're immune to COVID, you've got the blueprints to defeat it as soon as your enters your body. And that's why this vaccine is kind of so brilliant and so amazing. And although you know, it seemed new, it's something that's been in the works for a very long time. And as you can see why the mRNA is so important, it's just instructions to tell your body how to make this protein so that your body recognizes the protein again in the future. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> you did a wonderful job explaining yeah. that. So that's basically how the mRNA works. And I think one of the issues that a lot of people had was that this is a new type of vaccine. Why did it get approved so quickly. And I think people don't realize, or many people don't realize that it was something that was in the works for several years. I think what, over 10 years, they said? Yes. Sure. It's a new vaccine, but the mRNA vaccine type, like the backbone of it isn't new. It's It's been studied and studied for several, several years. I think the first one or one of the first ones was at 10, if I'm not mistaken. Actually, fun fact. So the mRNA technology was actually discovered 30 years ago. And scientists worked on the coronavirus vaccine during the 2003 SARS and 2013 MERS outbreaks. But mRNA technology was seemed too far-fetched for big grants and corporate funding back then. So human trials were started but could not be fully completed due to funding. But scientists continued to research it further anyway despite this. And many wish there had been more support back then 
because hindsight is twenty twenty. Do you know why they chose mRNA over other types for COVID? One of the reasons that mRNA was likely chosen for the COVID-19 vaccine was, one, they had already been looking at it for previous coronavirus vaccines, SARS and MERS. And then two is that you don't have to grow it. So some of the other vaccines, you have to grow a uh, virus in a Petri dish. And all we had to do for this was make our own using synthetic mRNA. And this is exponentially faster which was so important when we have an active pandemic ravaging the entire world. Yeah, I think that was another question as to as to like why were we using mRNA as to other as opposed to other types of vaccines? So, you know, I didn't know that, so that's great to know. Yeah, cuz we you know, we usually have to wait years for vaccines to be produced and instead with mRNA technology we were able to, you know, took weeks to to months to be able to do this. And I think, you know, it it seemed like such a scientific advancement, um, but I don't think we should be, you know, fearful of new medical technology. One example that I saw is albuterol wasn't available for asthmatic patients until the 1980s. And before then, thousands of kids died from asthma, but a new medicine called albuterol now saves countless lives. So it's like, sometimes we need to just really understand where this medical technology comes from and why things that happen now faster and and more efficiently isn't due to cutting shortcuts, but it's due to just better technology. Right, exactly. So basically me and you got the vaccine in December. We were right. I'm pretty sure we were probably the first, maybe part of the first solid organ transplant patients to get the vaccine, maybe in America. We literally might've been the first two. We signed up instantly. I was like, sign me up for two, three, four, five. I don't even care. <laughs> and because we both work in healthcare, it was healthcare workers who were able to to get it. So we definitely were some of the first <laughs> solid organ transplant recipients right. to get the vaccine. Exactly. Again, I don't know if it's 100% true, but I'm pr- probably part of the first few, you know. And people were asking me a lot, like, were you afraid? Because, you know, there weren't any studies on it. How did you feel about that? Did people ask you about that? Definitely. I had people messaging me being like, hey, do you think I should get it? Weren't you afraid? And I would say to them, you know, one, I'm certainly not afraid for the short term. Having been in the hospital, I am far more afraid of getting COVID-19 than getting the vaccine. And then in terms of long term concerns, I just didn't have any one because I knew that the mRNA would get degraded and not be staying in my body. And two things that I had read just uh, seemed so far-fetched as possibilities and, and the science didn't make sense. You know, one bit of misinformation that initially was out there right away was like, it, it can interact with the placenta, you know, so that turned out to be false and, and stuff like that. And I have so much faith in our healthcare system because it saved my life. I was willing to trust them enough to take out my heart and give me someone else's heart. And I'm willing to take such intense medications that completely deplete my immune system and put me at risk for other things down the line, like cancers and kidney disease. And it's like, if I'm willing to do that, These are the same government bodies that approve the surgeries, approve the medications I take. Why wouldn't I trust the process in terms of the vaccine that I'm going to take? And that's kind of how I reasoned my way through this. Right. That's exactly what I would say. Like, 
I trust everything that is being done to me. I think generally there was a mistrust and I still see it till this day. I see it more so now after COVID. There's like a mistrust of of medicine almost, right? Like I I'm, I don't know if you see it, but it's crazy how people I'm not saying you should like listen to everything your doctors are saying, you know, listen to everything your doctors and nurses are saying, do this, you know, it's fine to advocate and question and do this, but I'm in the system and I feel like if if I'm not going to trust it then like why am I doing this, right? Like why am I in this field even? So I had absolutely no issues with getting the vaccine and I had seen so many immunocompromised patients die in front of me, not, you know, from COVID, not just from COVID, but from any like little, little virus that, you know, could, we didn't think could kill you, let alone COVID. So I was ready to take, to take the vaccine, I, even knowing, you know, we didn't know about the risk, but that was like, trust me, there's more risk of getting the actual virus. I've seen it. in front. I've literally seen it in front of my own eyes. So that's how I justified it. Yeah. And I've been knocked on my ass multiple times since my transplant with CMV, C. diff, the flu. It's like if I can avoid any illness, I'm going to at all costs. And my trust in the vaccine isn't just me saying that as a physician. It's because of my experience as a patient that really, I think, helps me trust it even further, even more than maybe other healthcare workers. Um, There's definitely a subset of healthcare workers out there who maybe don't have trust. But if you look at the data, more than 96% of physicians have gotten this vaccine. So it's like, we're entrenched in this. And if all of us are willing to get this vaccine after all the research and, and, and knowledge base and schooling that we've had to go through, I think that kind of speaks volumes. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. So I think, you know, we got the vaccine and then and then what happened after that? After December, like we were all getting it. And then, you know, the general population, like non, non-healthcare workers started getting it too. And then we found out Johns Hopkins started doing that study, right? Yeah. So Johns Hopkins was like, hey, let's take a look at how this vaccine works in the immune compromised, specifically solid organ transplant population. And it makes sense, you know, us organ transplant patients are excluded from the initial vaccine studies because we do not respond to vaccines in the same way. So you cannot kind of put us in those studies to try and generalize how your vaccine is going to work in in the rest of the world. So Johns Hopkins is like, well, because these patients cannot take part in the initial trials, but we know now that it's a safe vaccine, we should see how immune compromised people respond. Um, so I signed up right away. You and I have a awesome group of physicians that are together. We con- you know talk daily just through things, and we're all physicians who have had solid organ transplant. So one of the um, other physicians put in the group like, hey, look at this study. And I was like, yeah, I'll sign up. So I signed up for that. And it was the initial results were posted in JAMA. And it was the antibody response to two-dose SARS-CoV-2 mRNA vaccine series and solid organ transplant recipients. And funny enough, but kind of to be expected, nobody really made any antibodies except for me. Um, (laughs) And I don't, you know, there's actually some reason behind that why, you know, someone like me would make the antibodies. But uh, in terms of the range that they had of like zero to greater than 250, 
I found myself luckily enough in the greater than 250 detectable antibody levels. And it was a nice feeling to know that my body was making antibodies, but being immune compromised in the end, it didn't change anything about my behavior. I still was wearing masks. I still was social distancing. I still was trying to do things outdoors, but it still was a nice feeling. Yeah, I think actually that actually is a really important thing. So a lot of people are started asking me at that time about getting antibodies tested, right? So like my doctor's not ordering it or how do I order it or how do I get it for myself? I want to be in the study, but I never got to sign up, blah, 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 blah. And like, we have to keep a couple things in mind. I think it's a great study and it's ongoing and many, many centers have been doing this, but keep in mind that antibody testing is, first of all, the antibodies that we do test are total antibodies. And that's not necessarily the best way to see how well your how robust your immune system is towards this vaccine or this virus. I think it's neutralizing antibodies. Again, I'm not an immunologist, but neutralizing antibodies is what you actually need to count to see how you're doing, right? So that's that's the first thing. So number number two is that if even if you do get your antibodies tested as a solid organ transplant patient, you have to remember that if it's high, is it really going to change what you're doing? It absolutely should not change what you're doing because you are still at risk of getting the virus. And not only are you at risk of getting the virus, but you're still at risk of getting the virus and having a very severe form of the virus and dying from the virus. So, you know, immunocompromised patients are unfortunately the ones who are most at risk of getting, you know, ARDS, which is basically a very, is basically what COVID essentially causes to the lungs and causes you to get intubated and on the ventilator and causes you sometimes beyond ECMO and all these crazy things. So if I'm not mistaken, COVID can give you the severe forms and immunocompromised patients are the ones that generally get the severe forms of, of COVID. So you would still have to mask up and do everything you were doing beforehand. The other thing that's important is that if those levels you check are negative and you don't have any antibodies, all it actually does is just make you really anxious about the fact that you don't have antibodies. So in my opinion, now again, just my opinion, nothing else, I wouldn't check them regularly. And uh, I think AST, I think it was AST that recommended to actually not get them checked regularly on, on an outpatient basis as well. And and I mean, if you are going to get them checked, remember, make sure it's interpreted appropriately with your physician or with your team, because all you're going to do is just psych yourself out and and do not use it as a way to not mask up because not only should you still be masking up and still be using the same precautions that you were beforehand, but you know, it shouldn't change anything that you're doing. With that being said, it's still important to get those vaccines because you know, it, it still helps you out and benefits you and in not getting the, the virus ultimately. And, and, and that even that little chance of not getting it is very important for all of us. So that's basically my little spiel on checking antibodies. I'm also all for like utilizing resources appropriately. So, <laughs> yeah, no, I completely agree. And like you said, you know, one other caveat is that, you know, just checking antibodies is great for looking at your antibody, you know, mediated response to a vaccine, but that has nothing to do to your cell mediated response. So, even if you have no antibodies, we don't have a way of measuring if your memory cells are still able to recognize the COVID-19 virus, if you were to get it, which is why it's still very beneficial for you to get the vaccine. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So that leads us to mm-hmm. shot number three. That's right. Our <laughs> main, the main reason as to why I wanted to talk about this. Have you gotten your shot number three yet? 
Of course I have. <laughs> so did I. Yeah. So as soon as I heard we could get shot number three, I was all in on shot number three. And some of this information about getting shot number three is coming from that same original, the part of the study that I was a part of at Johns Hopkins, where then they did another, they wrote another article and published their findings of safety and immunogenicity of a third dose of SARS-CoV-2 vaccine in solid organ transplant recipients. And they saw, although there was still not a robust response, there was still a improved response in antibody production in organ transplant patients. So even though I had all the antibodies in the world, I wanted more. So as soon (laughs) as I could get a third dose, I was all in on it. And again, I just got the same side effects, which for me was just arm soreness. And I was very happy to go forward with it again. Oh, yeah. I was going to ask about that. You only had arm soreness too. Yeah, that's it. And I work with many physicians who as soon as a third dose is an option for them, which it sounds like is going to be coming through the pipeline soon, uh, with the recommendation being eight months after your second dose, I know they all will be lining up to get their third dose as well. Yeah, absolutely. My boyfriend's an orthopedic surgeon and he's already like, I'm pretty sure he said he signed up for one already, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, He wants to get it as soon as possible. And he like does elective outpatient sports surgery. So (laughs) like nowhere near COVID patients, I don't think. Yeah. And I think, you know, the reason that it really needs to get going is because me and you got our second dose at the beginning of January. So eight months after that, we're there. So we weren't the only ones. There was many other healthcare workers right there with us, the first people to get the vaccine. So it's coming up on that eight month mark, which is why, you know, it's kind of time for for the FDA to make a decision on that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which leads me into, you know, why are we harping on this so much? And part of it is because of what we're seeing in the hospitals right now. So the number of patients coming in with COVID-19 is increasing again dramatically. I see it big time in my hospital and the majority of people coming into our hospital with COVID-19 are unvaccinated. unvaccinated. Yep. And so we, again, and I know everyone hears it on, you know, the media and anything we're saying today on the podcast isn't coming from a point of being judgmental, but just a point of educational and what we're seeing and why we make the recommendations that we do. Yeah. I remember the ones that we see in the hospital, especially, so we have admitted, you know, many COVID patients in the last, let's say month or so. I feel like the ones that I've seen who are doing worse And by that, I mean the ones who are prone, the ones who are on ECMO, the ones who are getting intubated quicker are generally the unvaccinated patients. So it's been crazy seeing it all over again. It's been, I think, and especially for the people, for all the fellows and residents who were here last year during that first initial surge, like everybody is so burned out. With that being said, it does not mean we are like not taking care of people. I mean, we're still doing everything we can for these patients. It's it's just so sad to see it, to see such like at least a little bit of preventable things, right? I mean, we see it in other things too, not just COVID, but this was something that could have somewhat been prevented. Yeah, having, you know, now that I am strictly cardiology based, I am selfishly thankful that I'm in cardiology because the only time I have to see a COVID-19 patient as quickly as a consultant 
but also cardiology is an area where we see all the time things that could be prevented. Uh, the biggest thing is uh, we see daily heart attacks in patients who smoke. And so it's like we know we can prevent things and, and it is very tough to see when you know something is preventable. And here we are now with a vaccine that we both fully trust. We've both gotten three doses of it um, and we think it could be very beneficial for the entire world. And just a few facts as of July 2021 study out of Los Angeles showed that unvaccinated people had five times more COVID-19 infections than fully vaccinated. And much more important, unvaccinated were 20 times uh, more likely to have a COVID-19 hospitalization than fully vaccinated people. Wow. Wow. And just to use, you know, that was Los Angeles, but there's a hospital in Houston who puts out actually their COVID-19 numbers daily. And you know, I think it gives us a good insight into exactly what the population inside a hospital looks like. Um, so this was from Houston Healthcare on August 30th, uh, so just recently. And they had 130 patients hospitalized with COVID-19. Only nine of them were vaccinated and 121 of them were unvaccinated. And of the 68 patients in the, C in, in the ICU, 66 of them were unvaccinated and of the 32 who were on mechanical ventilation, 31 of them were unvaccinated. Wow, that is crazy. Yeah. So it's just a snapshot of what we're seeing in, in uh, hospitals all over the country. And it's one of the reasons, right, we're starting a new podcast. The idea is to give insight into being immune compromised, being doctors and being patients. And we're clearly going to continue to talk about all that. But the biggest topic right now in the healthcare system is COVID-19. And this is kind of just an insight into how we're trying to deal with it on a daily basis. Yeah, this is us like dealing with it as doctors, as patients, and uh, and kind of how we're going through the healthcare system with all this new information being thrown at us every single day. Right. It's like, if I didn't have any fear, I might be an infectious disease doctor. <laughs> um, but, but I'm not because we have fears when we have to be in a hospital daily uh, being immune compromised. And this is kind of why we do all this research and, and increase our own knowledge. You know, COVID-19 is not something that I need to study very much as a cardiology fellow. Right. Um, but I know it's important for me to have this knowledge to speak to other immune compromised people and kind of be an advocate for our community. So that is it for today's show. Hopefully you enjoyed listening and maybe even learned a little bit along the way. Thanks for listening to Both Sides of the Stethoscope. Remember, you can always follow us on Both Sides of the Stethoscope on both Twitter and Instagram. Email your questions at bothsidesofthestethoscope at gmail.com. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, whether on Apple or Spotify or Google Podcasts, whichever mode of listening is your choice. And please join us during our next episode as Aline and I talk about our work-life balance, how we try and fit in our doctor appointments, how we manage all of the medications we need to take, and how we find time for ourselves in between working and doctor's See visits. See you then.